Hello there, it's your friend Phil, Project Management Trainer and Coach. Welcome to Flexible Contract Arrangements in Agile. Flexible contracts in Agile are not as common as contracts in the traditional world of project management, where we have fixed price, cost reimbursable time and materials. Instead, in the world of Agile, we see a lot more fresher perspectives to contracts. And one of the perspectives is based on the cone of uncertainty as far as making estimates, as far as what you can deliver, what you cannot deliver. And when it comes to preferring contracts with a variable type of optimism, such as that in the cone of uncertainty in the world of Agile, it can be a bit of a challenge to accept. Most of the time, clients, if they're not exposed to Agile, they still want fixed, fixed, fixed. Now, if you are the vendor getting one of those things uh, as a variable, it can be a real challenge. Most often, customers are not going to budge. So where do we draw the line? How do we collaborate? Well, first of all, we are open-minded and we are willing to explore possibilities. Now, I've been in the vendor situation for a very long time, for many years, and to be quite honest, what ends up happening is you put in all sorts of contingencies, you get pretty serious about change control, and if there's anything that moves out of line, well, it's going to be a change order. There's a lot of overhead, for lack of a better term, for managing those change controls. But think about it. What if you could put together a more flexible contract arrangement? Wouldn't that be a good thing? And let's say you fix the budget and you fix the schedule, but you tell the customer, you know what? If you want to change scope, that's all right. We'll fix the budget, but we will not fix the scope. Think about that. The scope is really what you want to be flexible because it's better for both parties. So a contract that people use quite a lot in the world of Agile has got a title. It's kind of funny. You know the dire straits? Well, this one is called money for nothing. Change for free. Huh? So it's a funny title, but it's a good contract. And the way it works is both parties agree to work in an Agile fashion. And what that means is that changes will be allowed. They expect it. Changes will be expected as part of the project. Client can ask for changes of scope. They will be punished from a schedule or budget perspective as long as something else of equivalent size can come out of that scope that we originally fixed. You see? So you're really just trading one set of scope for another set of scope. So when people approach the world of Agile, it is important to see scope as being variable and that being the bargaining chip. Flexible scope, change for free if we can swap out scope items. And of course, we're going to be careful with something like that. It's not like one day you're building a Harley and the next day you're building a a Tesla, right? They're very different things and we do need to manage that. But the idea is that we're working in good faith and we agree that if you need change, that's okay. We, as the vendor, will accept it as long as something else of equivalent size goes out. And that's the change for free aspect of the contract. Now, the flip side is the money for nothing. As a customer, I would like to encourage my vendor to complete early. If they can still maintain high quality, still, I would like them to complete earlier if they can. 
And that's the money for nothing. So the idea is you're going to get an extra amount for being done on time or getting done early. And it benefits both parties. I get my product done. I get my functionality done earlier for my customer. If I'm a vendor, I get money by completing early while maintaining quality. And there are different kinds of contracts. Another contract could be a series of successive statements of work that can be useful. And you can put all of these under an overarching master services agreement. You have a chunk, maybe a one month or three month chunk of work. And we're going to say this is the work we need in the next three months. So at the end of three months, evaluate what do we do next? And you have a series of SOW statements of work that incrementally complete the product. That's pretty much it. So there are many ways you can think about making your contracts flexible. I want to encourage you to think like that. Now let's get into some more specifics. Procurement and contracts in Agile can be traced to the Agile Manifesto value, customer collaboration over contract negotiation. So we are going to think about customer collaboration more In other words, how can we collaborate with our customers to give them the value they want while collaborating with them? And as far as the negotiating point is concerned, we try to make it as lightweight and easy and accessible, not heavyweight contracts, which are not favorable to the customer. Many project failures are as a result of breakdowns in customer supplier relationships also as a result of unclear and obtuse arrangements with no exit. Projects incur more risk when those involved in the contract take a poor perspective. We won. We won the, the negotiation. We came out on top. No, that's a poor perspective in the world of Agile. It needs to be one of we versus me. We must both look for a way to win the buyer and the seller. That's the mindset. When you think about collaboration, collaboration is as a result of pursuing a shared risk-reward relationship where all sides win. That's how you collaborate in the world of contracting, within an agile framework, of course. So let's talk about various agile contract types in more detail. I gave you a quick breakdown at first, but now we're going into some specifics. The very first one is a multi-tiered structure. And instead of formalizing an entire contract relationship in a single document, project parties can achieve more flexibility by describing different aspects in different documents, mostly fixed items, such as warranties, arbitration, and so on. Yes, we can lock that in an MSA, a master agreement, master services agreement. Meanwhile, all parties list other items subject to change, service rates, product descriptions, and a schedule of services. The very next one is emphasizing value delivered. After all, Agile is all about value, right? Delivered to the customer. Many vendor relationships are governed by fixed milestones or phase gates focused on intermediate artifacts rather than a full deliverable of incremental business value. Often, these controls limit the use of feedback to improve the product. Instead, milestones and payment terms can be structured based on value-driven deliverables in order to enhance the project's agility. The next one is fixed price increments. 
fixed price increments are also used in agile but they're used in increments see fixed price increments there's a difference between a fixed price contract for everything versus a fixed price increment per chunk of work instead of locking down an entire project scope and budget into a single agreement just like you have a WBS with a top level and lower levels, you can do that with your contracts as well. You can decompose a scope into fixed price micro deliverables. So for each of those sub deliverables, or if you wanted to call them work packages from the world that you understand, you could think of them like that. But you know, we typically don't do those WBSs in Agile. However, it does make for a compelling illustration. So the same way we have an umbrella master agreement, we can break that down into micro deliverables, such as user stories. For the customer, this will give them more control over how money is spent. For the supplier, it limits the financial risk of overcommitting to a single feature or deliverable. Still in the world of Agile, the next one that we think about is an NTE, not to exceed TNM. So in the Agile Practice Guide, we have the not to exceed time and material contracts. Customers incur a lot of unwanted risk from traditional TNM approaches, and the alternative is to limit the overall budget to a fixed amount, not to exceed. If you exceed this threshold, hey, you're on your own. We ain't going to pay this. And this allows the customer to incorporate new ideas into the project not originally planned. When customers want to incorporate new ideas, they'll have to manage to a given capacity, replacing original work with new work. Work should also be closely monitored as hours allocated reach their limit. Also, additional contingency hours could be planned into the maximum budget if considered helpful. So the bottom line is, me as a buyer, I need to know what my NTE is, and if I need something done, either that NTE has got to change, or I'm going to swap work out. And it encourages agile thinking. What is truly valuable? What is an absolute must versus what is a could or a nice to have? Also, additional contingency hours could be planned into the maximum budget if that is considered helpful. Graduated time and materials is the next one we're going to talk about. Graduated time and materials is yet another alternative with a shared financial risk approach. In Agile, the quality criteria are part of what done means. Remember, what done means and what ready means exist in your team charter. So the supplier can be rewarded with a higher hourly rate when delivery is earlier than the contracted deadline. Conversely, when the supplier would suffer a rate reduction for late delivery, that is also etched into the contract. And it's very similar to what I talked about in the very beginning. We should also allow our customers from an agile perspective to have an early cancellation option. When an agile supplier delivers sufficient value with only half of the scope completed, the customer shouldn't be bound to pay the remaining half if the customer no longer needs it. Just look at the crazy pandemic. There are a lot of things people had ordered and bought, and some people had gone as far as full-blown projects for their offices to replace furniture and other things. But when COVID hit, those purchase orders, they went to the scrap heap because they no longer needed it. 
But in some instances, they had already committed to it. It was too late. So in the world of Agile, we want a contract that can offer the customer the ability to buy the remainder of the project for a cancellation fee. The customer limits budget exposure and the supplier earns positive revenue for services no longer required. Now, I know this seems like a lot of contracts, but I'm hoping that it just reminds you of the possibilities in Agile. And those of you taking professional exams, I hope this helps you as well. So the next one is the dynamic scope option. It sounds like a fancy one. Now, for those of you who have been following me in the Agile Practice Guide, I want to call your attention to the dynamic scope option on page 78. And it reads, for those contracts with a fixed budget, a supplier may offer the customer the option to vary the project scope at specified points in the project. The customer can adjust features to fit the capacity. Then the customer can leverage innovation opportunities while limiting the supplier's risk of overcommitment. So the idea is you've got your fixed budget and based on what is at hand, you can vary the project scope at different points in the project. The customer then adjusts to fit the capacity. And of course, all of this has to be done with trust and with an understanding that we're working together. No one is trying to you know, strong arm the other over. The next one is team augmentation. This is the most collaborative contracting approach embedding the supplier services directly into the customer organization. This is where we are funding teams instead of a specific scope. So what does this do? It preserves a customer's strategic direction on what work should actually be done. If I know I'm paying a team a million dollars for all their work for a particular time period, collaborate with those individuals as team members. Because we need to remember individuals and interactions over processes and tools. It's all about the people. So when we look at a team, we need to see them as an extension of us. We're all working together for the greater good. Here's the final one in the world of the Agile Practice Guide, and it's called Favor for Service Suppliers. In order to diversify risk, customers may seek a multi-supply strategy. However, The temptation will be to contract the work such that the supplier does only one thing, which creates a web of dependencies before any usable service or product emerges. Instead, place an emphasis on engagements that deliver full value, as in the idea of completed independent feature sets. In other words, the vendor delivers an entire solution from start to finish, give you full value, and there's no passing on from one vendor, one supplier to the other. It's possible to create Agile contracts. After all, Agile is built on synergy, synergy of collaboration and trust. The supplier can help by delivering value early and often, just like we say in the manifesto, and the customer can help by providing timely feedback, be it in the form of a PSI or an MVP. Now, the next contract type has to do not with money, but with a team. The very first thing we want to be thinking about is social contract. Now, when we talk about team agreements, that is the wide net for all manner of team agreements. But we can get very specific and we can talk about 
social contract. We can talk about reward systems, right? Things that we do when we have a team. The bottom line is before engaging on any agile venture, you need to hire a team. You need to engage a team. And the question is, what kind of team will you hire? We're not talking about skills here. We're talking about mindset because the biggest factor when it comes to team success, the biggest indicator is actually team dynamics, team thinking, not one person, but the think and the collaboration and the synergy of the entire team. So right from the get-go, we must think about social contracts. We put together team agreements. You could call them team working agreements. It's a very useful thing to do. And it's basically a contract written by the team and for the team. Everyone agrees to it within the team. The agreement talks about how we're going to work together, when our meetings are going to be held, how we'll show up to those meetings on time, not getting late to the daily scrum. We're going to do all of these kinds of activities. We're going to do X, Y, and Z in our daily scrum. This is the way we're going to run things. We're going to decide how we do our work. And it's very high level, yet it's a simple little contract. So you hear the word contract. We also refer to it as a team contract. So team contract is the same as social contract. How we get along and work as a team. A really good example of how we could have a sort of contractual arrangement in a team agreement is the area of communications. So I'm sure you've all had this situation. And my goodness, I learned this very, very early on in my career, not to go back and forth in an email thread. But you see it happening every single time. Someone around you, some inexperienced individual or someone who's just trying to poke the bear is going to send out an email thread to everyone and their grandma, back and forth, back and forth, things that should be discussed face-to-face. It's like 30 pages long at that point. It probably doesn't even reflect the original subject that it was sent for. Well, those kinds of conversations are hopeless. They're useless. They're terrible, terrible ways of communicating. And it, it doesn't have a lot of good information. It just drains everyone's time, drains resources, not good. Can you imagine 50 people in a company reading one email for five minutes each? You just blew 250 minutes of company time. And some of those individuals are making a hundred bucks an hour. What a waste. So one encouraged agreement of the team is to pick a maximum number of times to allow an email thread to go back and forth. And another term we use is ground rules. The ground rule says three is enough. Three times back and forth, that's it. So now you're getting the picture. We use the umbrella term team agreement. We could use the term social contract, team contract, and ground rules interchangeably. But ground rules are more to do with the behavior, the expectations. And in the overall agreement, we could have a number of things. How we're going to socialize, words that will be used. A company that I trained, a well-known Ivy League university, they had a swear jar. And if anyone was to swear, use a bad word, they're going to put $5 in the swear jar and the team is going to use it for pizza sometime down the road. And this could be a very, very simple statement. 
using team agreements. So in my example of going back and forth for, the, for three times, stop the email thread after the third time because it's lost its effectiveness, follow the ground rules. And in that way, you get through conversation much faster. It's much richer. You're also building up the relationship better because you've got that social interaction. Hello. That's why we call it social contract. And you shut down those horrible email threads. Like get forwarded, reply all and all that kind of nonsense. Right. And then it goes a little bit to the reward system when we talk about team agreements. When we're talking about building agile teams, we tend to think of them again as a social structure. So reward systems, performance management, things like that, they tend to change as well. So imagine you're rewarding someone, let's say an individual. It might potentially cause bad team behaviors, such as I get all my work done, so I get rewarded for that. And that creates enmity and wars within teams. Still, the team fails as a result because you're not helping the other team members. So even if I got all my work done, but my buddy in the team doesn't get his done, I win, he loses. That's not agile thinking. There needs to be some change in how we evaluate people's performance. It's not just their individual performance, it's how they perform as a team. So the agile think would be to ask the question, how do I get the team to synergize and get to peak performance? And how do I keep them there after they've passed through the five stages of team development? They're now in the fourth stage, performing. How do I prevent them from getting to the morning stage or the adjourning state? That is where you never want to go because it's so bad to have developed all of this synergy all of this comradeship and to get to that point and you have to disband the team. You just blew a ton of company resources, time spent synergizing, the retrospectives they had, all of that knowledge that they've built up, all of that empirical data that we generated from the sprints, what a waste. And that's why when we talk about agreements, team agreements, they are very important front and center. I would also advise you, if you're getting ready, like I say, for professional exams, you don't really know what is in some of these team agreements, what is in the team charter. This is talked about on page 49 and 50 in the Agile Practice Guide. So if you go to page 49, it talks about a servant leader facilitating the chartering process. You talk about the project charter there as well, even in the Agile Practice Guide, believe it or not. But when we go to page 50, we see the team charter. And it talks about team values, working agreements, what ready means, what done means, ground rules, group norms. So this whole lingo, getting into the mindset of individuals and interactions, people, teams, more important than processes and tools, team agreements, social contract, team contract, so important. I hope you found this to be useful. If you are getting ready for the PMP exam and you're looking for help, a coach, a trainer to take you to that next level, my advice is for you to go on down to the website that you see on the screen right there. It's www.praizion.com. You can sign up for training one-on-one. You can sign up for coaching and mentoring one-on-one. You can sign up for group coaching and group classes. So check out the website and I wish you all the very best as you prepare for your exam. If you're watching this on YouTube, don't forget, you can tune into the podcast 
It's www.pmradio.org. You take care and see you soon.